Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Adam. And this is Chris. And this is Tim. And we're going to give our hot takes on the game that we just finished playing, Clank in Space. Now, before we jump into the description of the game, I just want to call out that Chris is a dirty hustler and karma is not going to be kind to him. <laughs> no reaction. No comments. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Chris is just blown away with the truth. No, I, I just, you know, uh, look, man, a position of dominance in the world is a hard thing to live with. And, you know, sometimes you just have to suck it up and, and just live with it. And what, what Tim's talking about is that we are in the middle of the three of us of a very, very high stakes, intense, very high stakes, intense, high stakes uh, uh, series of Star Realms games. And I'm, I'm doing all right. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So basically what he did is the way we pick our games that we're going to play and, and talk about on game night is that we kind of go round robin. Each one of us picks a game and then it goes to the next person the next week. Chris put this little bet out to me and I apparently did it to Adam too. I didn't know until after the fact, but he said, Hey, how about if we play a series of star realms game and whoever wins gets to pick the game for the other person in that month. And I was like, Whoa, whoa, whoa hold on a second. That's, that's given up a lot for me. Like I get really excited about picking my game. So when he offered that, I was pretty hesitant to do it, but then I'm a betting man. So I said, sure, let's do it. Also, I usually win at Star Realm. So I thought, no problem. I'll just get a couple extra picks, uh, you know, an extra pick out of it this month. It hasn't worked out quite that way so far. For me, uh, Chris, the innocent Chris just comes with his smooth text message. Hey, Adam, let's make this hot. Let's put a little something on this one. And of course we did a seven game series and I accepted, and this is after already getting slaughtered like 10 in a row by Chris. So there was no hustle involved, just my moronicness for accepting this bet that Chris so <laughs> humbly offered. Actually, I broke my slump. I got one, two of the, two of the ended up being six games before Chris won four. So I felt okay about that, but I did lose my pick. So Chris is just picking us off one by one. As much as I'd like to claim how amazing I am at this game, it's not actually true. Anybody who's played any amount of Star Realms knows there's enough luck in this one. I think I read once that the best players in the world have like a 60% win percentage. So I, I'm pretty confident that it has a lot more to do with luck than my actual ability. But that said, you know you guys are in for now. You know what this means? It's going to be like a month-long session of a, a feast for Odin. You know I hate <laughs> yeah. those euros, man. Well, the, the thing is, I actually haven't lost yet. I haven't lost yet. So Chris and I, when he offered this, I wanted to go with a bigger series. I wanted to make sure that there was enough games in there to make it feel like you know it wasn't just luck-based. So I said, let's play a 20-game series so whoever wins 11 games is going to be the winner. Chris proceeded to beat me 8-0. and I finally won a game, and then he beat me. So it's now 9-1. to So Chris is 9-1. to He has not won the series yet. He'd have to win two more games <laughs> before I win 10 games for him to win. So it's not over yet, and I have... I've had winning streaks like that against him before, so I'm still holding out hope that I can make this happen, but... Ain't over till it's over. <laughs> but if there is an expert Star Realms listener out there, or a friend who knows an expert at Star Realms, you want to look up Dan Karen on the Star Realms app and challenge him and give him, serve him a giant piece of humble pie, please. <laughs> and I said this when we did our Star Realms review. I love playing Star Realms. I'll play anybody. If you, um, if you want to play a game sometime, just uh, do a challenge to D-A-N-K-A-R-A-N. Love this game. <laughs> please kick his butt for us. Please. All right. So now <laughs> let's jump in to a description of Clank in Space. 
In Clank in Space, you play as thieves who have teleported onto the ship of the evil villain Lord Eraticus in order to steal one of their prized artifacts. You'll race your opponents to hack two terminals in order to get the command code to break into the bridge, steal an artifact, then try to make it back to one of the remaining escape pods. Clank in Space is a deck builder, and each player starts with a deck of 10 basic cards. On your turn, you'll draw five cards from the top of your deck and play them, performing the actions indicated on the cards. Most cards will give you movement that allow you to move around the ship, or skill points that allow you to buy or recruit additional cards to add to your deck. Or they may have Clank. Those simulate you making noise by putting cubes of your color into a bag. At the end of your turn, the market row where cards were purchased from is refilled, and if any of the new cards have an icon of Lord Eraticus on them, he attacks by drawing cubes out of the bag of Clank. And if your color cube is drawn, you take a damage. If a player takes 10 damage, they're knocked out. If they're knocked out in a region of the board close to the exit called the cargo bay and they've already picked up an artifact, then they still get to count their end game points, but don't get bonus points for escaping. If they're knocked out outside of the cargo bay or before they were able to retrieve an artifact, then they're eliminated from the game and are not eligible to win. After all players have escaped or been knocked out, the game is over and players count up points on the cards in their deck, on the artifact and some other items they've picked up on the map and on their escape pod. The player with the most points is the winner. Clank in Space was designed by Paul Denon and is published by Renegade Game Studios. All right, so let's get into the conversation. So Adam, this was your first play at Clank in Space tonight. Um, so congratulations on, on that. First play of Clank at all, from what I understand. That's cool. Yeah, correct. Chris and I played this quite a bit. In fact, Clank in Space was one of the first hobby board games that I bought. I'd, I'd been playing with a friend for a little while who had his own collection, but when I was finally getting the really getting the bug and like I need to buy some games, this was one of the first one he recommended to me before I even played the regular Clank. So I've had this game for a long time and and had a lot of plays out of it. So I'm excited to talk about this tonight. But let's let's jump into gameplay and mechanisms on Clank in Space. Chris, I'm gonna start in the middle here. I don't want to start with Adam's impression because I'm afraid I'm afraid where it might go. Let's start with you, Chris. Anything on a replay? It's been a little while since we played. What What were your thoughts playing this game tonight? Anything that stood out to you from a mechanisms perspective? Well, first, it just playing this game, like you said, it's a game that we played a long time ago. In fact, I think it was it was one of the first games that we had ever played together, and it was I think yeah. it might have been the first time that we ever got our two families together and played a board game, a serious board game together. And so, a lot of nice memories here. Um, and playing it tonight was just a really strong reminder of just how fun this game is. Uh, you and I had also played Acquisitions Incorporated. So I played a little bit of the, the, the old game, a little bit of the new game, uh, and have tried different versions and, and enjoy all of it. But Clank in Space, I think is just super fun in part because I really enjoy the um, Star Trek-ish uh, sci-fi theme of it. But in terms of the mechanisms, a couple things I really like. It's got a really nice board. It's got a really nice set of interesting things happening on that board, like goals you have to accomplish in order to move from one place to another. Ultimately, the goal of the game is to go from the starting point all the way to the, the backside of the board, grab a relic of some sort, which vary in points, and then work your way back across the board to the escape pods and then escape the ship before you end up getting killed by, by the bad guys. And in moving around the board, you are basically doing it through a, um, a deck building mechanism. You're drawing your cards and you're buying new cards and hopefully scrapping a few cards. And just you know, combining those mechanisms, I think, is just an incredibly fun, incredibly fun system. 
So that's my overall view of it. Adam, so this was your first play of it tonight. How'd you do? How did I? <laughs> why do you gotta ask it like that, Tim? Uh, <laughs> I got absolutely slaughtered. I um, so for this game, yeah, you're supposed to race across to the right side of the spaceship, the aft end of the spaceship, I guess, and maximize your points as you're doing that. And you have to hack a couple regions of the ship uh, before you can go grab that artifact and hustle back over to the escape pod. So I think everyone else had grabbed an artifact and hustled back over to the left side. So I basically got lapped about three times <laughs> before I hacked, I hacked one thing. So you have to, I did one out of the three things, one out of the four things required to like count your points. So I wasn't even eligible to score my points in this game. That's how bad I did. But I still, I enjoyed the crap out of it. This was to piggyback on your earlier story, Tim, I saw this board game in a store as I was first getting into the hobby too. And I asked the guy at the store, Hey, which, you know, what games, might be kind of cool. I'm kind of into like science fiction stuff. And this game looks like a lot of fun. And he, the guy kind of steered me away from buying this game. And I wish I would have bought it at that point because I would have had so much fun playing this this game. It's a riot. I don't know if humor can be a mechanic, but the witticisms and the puns on all these different cards are just fantastic. There's just references to Star Trek left and right and Star Wars and a few of the other sci-fi shows that, that we were talking about. So yeah, Aliens, Avatar, yeah, tons of stuff. Everywhere. And it's great as a huge yeah. um, consumer of sci-fi, both good sci-fi and bad, any kind of sci-fi, I just thoroughly enjoyed all the references and the gameplay uh, of this game. So that's my ramble about that without talking about any mechanisms yet, but <laughs> both of you guys have managed to not talk about any mechanisms <laughs> so far. But I'll turn it over to you, Tim, for uh, some serious talk about mechanism here, and um, then I'll regather my thoughts. For a deck builder, one of the interesting mechanisms is that the cards that you're playing are not always positive, right? When you're normally you play the benefits of a of a deck builder, and you're going to get something good out of it. They might be strong, they might be weak, but you always get some good benefit. And what they did in this game is add that two of your starting cards actually give you a pure negative thing. You don't get any benefit from playing those cards. That's the clank um, that goes into the clank section of the board. And eventually, when Lord Eraticus attacks, you put all those cubes that have been created from clank, which is also a cool thematic idea, the idea that you're making noise on the ship, so you're more likely to get attacked or caught. The, the cards in your deck are going to actually give you that negative thing. And you can even buy some cards later that have some positive effect, but also give you more clank. That's kind of interesting. It also adds to the fact that there really is not a lot of ways to scrap cards in this deck and almost no ways to scrap those cards that create the clank, those starting cards, because that's a key mechanism in this game. You have to be creating that clank and getting it into the bag so that you're at risk, so that there's some pressure put on you. And I really like that. I think that's a really fascinating way that they handled deck building and they kind of push your luck mechanism that is is the root of where the tension from the game comes in and the kind of semi-cooperative nature of like, we want to all do something before it gets too aggressive. But at some point, okay, I think I'm going to make it out. I'm going to start really hoping that I set other people up to fail here. So it's a, it's kind of an interesting um, tempo because of that push your luck mechanism. So that's, that's, I think the first thing that always stood out to me with this game and that I still really appreciate about it. So Chris, anything else? I just want to go back for a second to what Adam said about the humor in this game, because I think this is the only game I've ever played where I actually laugh, you know, I laugh out loud reading some of these cards. I mean, they're so doggone funny. And that carries through to some of the other, you know, Clank games as well, like Acquisitions Incorporated. If you, it's a 
uh, a campaign game, and there's a story along with it. And I know it's not the game we're talking about tonight, but it's just it's in that same spirit, and it is it is truly funny. It really it really adds a lot to the game, and so you know, like like Adam said, you know, I don't know if humor humor is a mechanism. But it is a huge part of the enjoyment of this game. So I got to agree with that. Yeah, that is not the game we're talking about. It's also not game player mechanisms. So thanks for still not getting onto any mechanisms <laughs> that you appreciate. <laughs> I have what I'm ready. Okay, I'm ready for okay. mechanism now. All right, now. I think I'm in first. I get to say whatever I want. <laughs> so the thing that caught me up in this game was the cards have different elements to them. Each card will give you a certain amount of points that you can use to buy other cards or what else a certain amount of swords you can use to fight bad guys and one thing that i vastly overlooked was boots cards have these little shoes on little boots that help you move around the spaceship i wasn't keenly aware of the importance of getting cards with boots on them so that you could move so i had like i don't know four or five plays four or five rounds where i could only move one or two or zero spaces so that was a big issue for me getting around the spaceship to collect all this stuff but I like that mechanism. There's a big element of tempo here. It's, it is kind of a race to the aft of the ship and then back to the escape pods. And there's this mechanism where if you're lagging behind, you collect these, this damage and you can die. I like that, that the, the pressure's on to get out of there and you can, you can just die like I did. I totally got decapitated in this game and had no chance. And I think that's fun while I got slaughtered. I think that's a really fun kind of element. There's not that many games that that do that as far as I know. So as a mechanic, I thought that was pretty neat that there's certain qualifications you have to do in order to even score your points. I know there's a few other games out there like that, but this was a fun way of executing that, I thought. Yeah, and speaking of player elimination, because that can be a huge negative in games. It can really suck the fun out if somebody gets just eliminated from the game, they can't play anymore. But I actually think they do a kind of neat thing here that any when if you get eliminated, when it comes back to your turn, then you get to just pull some cubes out of the bag to potentially attack the other players. And then at least keeps the person that got knocked out kind of in the game and, and engaged in the game and having a fun time saying like, oh, I hope I draw three blue cubes and knock Adam out this turn. Even for a game with player elimination, I actually still appreciate that they managed to try to keep it fun for the people that got knocked out of the game. And then it's hilarious. I can get razzed by, by Tim, like not only just between the four of us, but also on a podcast with a bunch of people listening about how poorly I played the game. So that's <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, one thing that was actually uh, it occurred to me as we're talking through this, but and I don't know if this is more thematic or if it's um, if it's mechanism. Oh, I'm sure it's but, thematic, Chris. Well, There's yeah, no but way you get into mechanism. <laughs> no, no, no. But this is it, this is a mechanism too. It's there's definitely and there's different ways to score points in this game. And one of the things that you're doing is you're wandering around this ship. Is you're finding all these different things. Like you can find little treasures. You can find uh, the relics that you have to get to. You can you can buy things in the marketplace. And I find it really does feel like. It's like a little scavenger hunt. Like the whole idea here is you're through these like sort of space rebels, kind of like smugglers or whatever you want to call it. And you really do get that feeling as you're playing through the game that, that, that that's what you're doing. You're kind of wandering around the spaceship, just kind of grabbing stuff wherever you can to get those points. And, and it really does add that mechanism. I think all those little places that you can kind of skip over here, grab that treasure, and then, you know, get back onto the, the track over to the relics. It, it, adds a, it adds a lot to the game, I think. It makes it really, it adds the theme and the mechanism. I agree, because there's a cool kind of adventure element to this game. There's a little bit of a modular setup. And one thing I didn't really pay much attention to was kind of the route and choosing the best route around the ship to collect all this cool stuff as you're making your way to get the other cool stuff. And then as you're making your way back, 
you know, you can really collect a, a lot of stuff that'll help you out along the way, score some points. The route maximization is kind of a neat aspect of this game too. Yeah, for sure. The uh, the question marks, whatever they are, the little tokens. Secrets. The secrets, thank you. There's minor secrets and major secrets. There are spaces around the board that have these cardboard shit seated that you don't know what they are until you get to the spaces. But that adds one of the elements of player interaction here which is that you are trying to race to some of the best spots on the board. And if you get to something before someone else does, they may not have the same opportunity there. Like the major secrets, there's only one on any space they're seated at. So if two of you are kind of going around the same route and one of you manages to get ahead of the other person, you can steal that out from under them. You can hack a terminal before someone else does, like which happened to Chris tonight. I rushed to a terminal and got the benefit and then his best option that turn was to hack a terminal that gave him negative abilities unless he moved to another space. There's that and then trying to get to the best artifacts. There's all kinds of elements where you really do care what other people are doing on the board. Where are they? Are they going to get to that before I do? Do I have to, do I want to rush it and try to screw them? Because, you know, I know that he's headed to that spot and I can get right in front of him and take it. So without actually blocking out somebody's path, you can really prevent the options for them and kind of take those away. And I, I like that. Adding on to player interaction, because I know you guys like talking about that. What did you guys think about the player interaction? Did you feel like it had a decent amount of player interaction where you cared about what people were doing? Yeah, I could see you guys over there kind of feuding in that bottom left sector, whereas I was just kind of lost in the whole little elevator <laughs> thing. So yeah, I was up in the upper section, just wandering around, not wandering around, just kind of stuck in two different rooms. Anyway, I could see you guys... Uh, you know, meandering down there, kind of duking it out for the best spots. And then that whole race thing, you guys were doing some stuff over here looking for artifacts. And I was like, man, I wonder what that's like being over on that side of the ship. <laughs> and I could see you guys kind of maneuvering to get the highest point artifacts. And then again, that race back to the left side, I could see you guys really working for it and trying to find the best way back. So I thought the interaction was there. It's not super interactive. There's no like direct conflict or anything like that, but there is that nice little outmaneuver the other guy to to get where you need to go yeah there are also a couple ways that you can directly interact like steve had picked up a couple cards you know he bought them in the adventure road that actually gives his opponents clank which of course is the negative cubes that will cause you to get attacked so it varies depending on what cards come up but there, some of those do exist in the game and it's fun to see those come up and like you know mess with your opponent and then cards that you can get that will allow you to take your own clank away so there's there's another place there obviously the race to just get out and hopefully if you get out then you can just start pulling clink out of the bag kind of like if you die but that's another reason to just kind of you know get to the end first because potentially you can knock other people out at the end of the game so there's a there's a few other spaces there mm -hmm. yeah and actually what that's um in terms of the player interaction the physical space of the game i think makes a huge difference because unlike so many games like i'm thinking about you know we played dune recently and how it's such a uh, you know, it's such an abstract concept. You know, you, it's worker placement and there's spaces where you can go, but it's it's generally a pretty abstract board space. You know, you think about dudes on a map, you know, where there's that player interaction. This is kind of like that, in that it's the four of us, you know, running around this spaceship, all trying to be the first one to get this thing or that thing or to do some particular, you know, it, it feels like there's a story to it, you know, that you were actually in there trying to get this stuff. It's like, a, it's like watching a sci-fi movie almost. And I think that uh, that adds a lot to it. It's like Tim had to like push you out of the way to hack the terminal and then just see you later, Chris, and went on to yeah. the next thing. <laughs> it's funny like that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that was a, that's a great example of that player interaction or where um, there's one point where Steve and I were like, like physically like racing to who's going to be the first one who gets to this spot. And then, you know, we landed on the same spot together. And then he managed to make it over to that, you know, that high point treasure first. 
But, you know, there was very much some player interaction there in that, you know, we were both like, you know, racing to see who's the first person who can get to that spot. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's good for, it's a good mechanic and it also makes for a good story. And I like how that kind of feeds into the deck building aspect of the game, which we haven't talked about. And it is a mechanic, Tim. So I'm bringing up another mechanic here. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. The, the deck building is, is pretty slick here, too, because that gives you movement points, which lets you race around the board. That gives you some of the cards let you avoid like a security checkpoint. They'll let you move right through that, which is a, a unique space on the board. There's these different kind of spaces on the board, and the, the cards in your deck let you eschew some of those obstacles and get to where you need to be so it just ties back in a nice loop a nice feedback loop of the deck building that works really well with the uh, spaceship kind of exploration design of the game so i really enjoyed that too yeah and speaking of the security checkpoints since you mentioned it i actually think that that's one of the mechanisms that makes this game work really well because someone can't just stock up on boots and then just race through the game Mm -hmm. most turns you probably can't get more than about three spaces maybe four spaces if you're lucky before you hit one of those security checkpoints. And of course, those when you get to one of those, you have to end your movement on that turn. You can't move any further. So that's really clever. And it makes you have to plan around like, okay, what's the optimal thing? Because if I move to this space this turn, the security checkpoint's next, which means I can only use one boot. And if I draw three boots, I've wasted them. So maybe I should go over to this other space. Then I've got two spaces to go. But what if I don't draw two boots? You know, So it always gives you a little bit more tension as far as where should I end my turn? Anyway, I think that's one of the things that makes it work well. In the base game of Clank, I think there were caves that they used as those mechanisms. So from a thematic perspective, and then when we played Acquisitions Incorporated, they were forests, if I remember right. So they've kind of used that mechanism in all of these versions of the game. And I think it's a a really important one to make this work and and keep the game tight and, you know, make sure someone can't just run away uh, really easily with it. Yeah. So not only those security checkpoints, but you had the, uh, to get over to the the far right side of the board, you had to have the two other hack terminals, like your your passcode to get over there. There was that. And then you could get this key that let you move along certain routes too. So it was pretty neat just the way to negotiate the map and move around and do different things. And it seemed pretty unique to me in the, in my experience. Yeah. And those, those hack terminals I think are important to call out because they, they offer a really great benefit in this game. If you played the original game of Clank, there was nothing like that. Basically you could run in, get an artifact, get the cheapest artifact and just try to race your way back out again. And that was one of the unfortunate letdowns of that game is that oftentimes the game would just end super quickly before people could really build up their deck or feel like they accomplished anything. And so I think that this was a solution. I think when they made Clake in space, they said, how can we prevent people from doing that? Okay, we got to give them a couple other objectives to meet before they can even grab the artifact. It works really well. The negative of it is that it does add a little bit of rules overhead. So if you're teaching this game to somebody, there's already a lot of little rules you got to teach. And then you got to also remind them several times, hey, don't forget, you got to go hack a workstation here and get one in another module. And it also can sometimes slow the pacing of the game a little bit. It still didn't run too long, right? I mean, we played tonight on TTS, which is always slow for us. And we got done with a four player game in two hours, which is pretty brisk. So not too bad, but I've definitely seen where the game feels like it's just kind of crawling for the first half of the game until people have hacked those workstations and gotten the artifacts. So that's the the negative with it. But um, all in all, it's still, I think it helps a lot to just make the game feel like everybody got to really get something done. I mean, yeah. unless you never get to hack your second workstation. Oh, come on, man. Come like. on, man. <laughs> I, honestly, the, the whole time I'm sitting there thinking like, what is that? Is Adam playing like three-dimensional chess here? Like, what am I missing? <laughs> 
I was, I was playing one-dimensional chess where you guys were playing five-dimensional chess. That's what was really going on. One last thing on the deck building is that there is a little bit of a faction mechanism, you know, kind of like we've talked about in Star Realms, where if you can manage to get a couple cards of the same faction, then they trigger and do some, some extra benefits. It's more limited in this game. It, it's not something that you can just, like, every card has a faction on it. In fact, it's, it's probably, it seems like a third or maybe less than a half have any faction markers at all. So... When you get to trigger them, it feels pretty special, um, but it's not something you're going to hit all the time. It is fun, though, when you can make it work and manage to build a deck around one faction and you're just triggering it every turn. I've seen some, some deck building games go really cool like that. Kind of reminds me of Dune Imperium in a way, how sometimes you can really win by just building up an amazing deck and everything just comes together. And sometimes you have to win by conflict. And, and this game's kind of the same way. Sometimes you get that avenue to be able to just build up this really cool deck and everything works together. But not always. You can't count on it. You got you to gotta look at whatever the best option is at this, at this moment. You mentioned Dune Imperium. You can really see the kind of footprint or the pre-footprint of Dune Imperium here in this game and some of the aspects that, that were pulled yeah. over there. But on another note, what's the uh, the Darth Vader character that moves up the right side of the... It's not Darth Vader. Lord Eraticus. Lord Eraticus. So that was kind of a neat crescendoing, tempo-inducing effect as players accomplish more stuff, which I was not a part of. <laughs> this Lord Eraticus moves up this right, this track on the right side, which when certain cards come mm. out and fill in the market row of cards that you can purchase from, cause more cubes to be drawn from this bag, which causes more damage based on the previous amount of clank that's been spat out there. So I like that whole tempo aspect of Lord Eraticus moving up this track. It causes a nice crescendoing effect in the race, putting the pressure on for people to get where they need to be before they get too much damage and perish. Yeah, it's cool. And as he moves up, not only does he, the further up he is, he, you draw more cubes out of the bag, but as you get to some of the top spaces on that track, there are these red cubes in there. They're called bounty hunters. When you get to one of those with him on the track, then those go into the bag. And when those come out, everybody takes damage. As you get later into the game, it's like you can draw four cubes and everybody just took three damage. And then Tim took one extra damage or something like that. So it's just fun. It really does build the tension and it makes it feel like you've got a chance to kind of work your way up at the beginning of the game. Mm -hmm. But once people start getting those artifacts and he moves up that track, all of a sudden you've got to start racing to get out because it could end in three or four rounds once those tensions rise. One last thing that happens when he moves up the track is that it puts a gate on this kind of elevator that you can use to move around the board. And so that's also fun to watch sometimes where someone's like, okay, if I can just get to the elevator after I've picked up this artifact, then I can zoom all the way back to the cargo bay. But then somebody else raises in one more level and blocks off mm -hmm. the cargo, cargo bay. And I've seen that happen and really shut down the game. Of course, it didn't happen this time. Um, no reason. There's no reason. Why I have to talk about it. <laughs> But yeah, they did a great job of, of helping build that tension in every game. It feels, it feels tight. Yeah. Every single game I've ever played of Clank in space, I, and it's probably been 25 or 30 games of this, mm -hmm. it's always felt tense at the end. It's always felt like it was going to yeah. be a challenge to for everybody, at least. Some people might get out a little bit easier, but it's always felt like a challenge for everyone to get out. And I've played games where nobody got out, and that's yeah. hilarious and frustrating. Um, but I've played a lot of games where one person made it to the escape pods and maybe like tonight, a couple made it to the cargo bay and then one didn't make it there at all. So always really good. Somehow they managed to pull the tension to, to make it work in every single game. I love it.
Well, we've already talked about themes, so I think we can move on to our final. <laughs> no, just kidding. Let's talk about the production of Clank in Space. Now, we played on Tabletop Simulator tonight, but Chris and I have both played this in, in person. One thing I will mention is the setup on the game. One of the things they did is they made it a modular board. Adam, I don't know if you noticed that during the setup, but basically there, there was three sections in the board that are blank when we started, right? And then when you set up, I think it comes with four double-sided modules. So essentially, you kind of randomly, maybe it's five, but you randomly pick three of them and then flip either side and that creates the map. It's always a little bit different set of routes. Some of them are harder. Like there's one that we didn't see tonight that has a whole bunch of hearts in it. So if you happen to have that one in your thing, you can go there and you can do a lot of healing. But then there are some that are super hard that have a lot of backwards arrows and things like that. So it always changes up what's the optimal path to go, which, which way should I get started, which workstation should I try to hack. And then of course there's the modular upside down objects. What were those called again? The modular upside down objects. The secrets? The secrets, thank you. Yeah, so there's also the secrets that are distributed around the board. So that's really cool. It changes the variability of the setup, but setup is a pain in the butt on this game uh, put all those little components upside down shuffle them get them all in the in the right space on the board shuffle and put out the right number of artifacts for the the number of people that are in the board it's a yeah. lot to set up and put away yeah. every time but you know it's for it's for a cause there's a reason for it but just wanted to mention that from a production perspective uh you know this is a pretty rare game where i love the game and the production is just kind of meh i mean like tim said it's, it's a pretty fussy game it's a, it's a box full of cardboard. There's a whole bunch of little chits. There's a couple of, you know, a couple of meeples in there, you know, some cubes. It's, it's really nothing exciting. And uh, I remember the first time that I saw it. And again, this is one of the first times that we had played a serious game, Tim and I. And I was looking at it going, oh, my God, this is like a box full of tiny little, you know, pieces and chits and tokens and things. And this just looks horrifying. But then once you get going, I mean, it just... Once the setup is done, it just flows. And the cards, and the cards are the heart of this game. I mean, they they are where the fun is. They're where the all the action happens because that's where you're that's where you're drawing your your actions, your attack, and your your movement and your purchase power. I think that makes up for so much because you know, again, I always love a game that's got great production. This one is uninspiring, <laughs> but they've managed to really hit on you know all eight cylinders you know, in the cards where it really mattered and made a game that's good enough that I think it can, you know, I can overlook the fact the production is, is really kind of, kind of mediocre. What do you guys think? So Chris, I didn't, I didn't hear you bring up uh, this game for the best artwork in, in games. Why was that? Cause it's not the best artwork. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I know. <laughs> no, no, I, it, that's a good question. Cause it, it's funny, it, but it's the, it's the concepts that are, that are great. The art, the yeah. artwork is good. I mean, the artwork is clever and it, it gets the job done, but, um, but it really is the humor behind it. I think that that makes it stand out. We need to have like a wittiest top five wittiest board games or something like that. And this would be probably all of our lists. At Hands this point. down. But there Hands you go. Down. No, I was going to say that the reason I brought up the art is because I actually really don't like the art at all. They're trying to give you something that's funny and silly and it achieves that just fine. Uh, but the art is so bland and the art style is just not great to me. It's fine. It's totally functional and it gets across the point of all these silly like amalgams of characters, sci-fi characters that they're trying to create, right? They don't actually put Chewbacca on a card. Instead, it's Furry Smuggler. And so he looks a little bit, he happens to have the same bandolero, whatever the thing that Chewbacca wears. So you know that it's supposed to represent Chewbacca. And so they do that with all this art. And sometimes they combine two characters um, and they get the point across. It's just not very, you know, it's not like 
awesome art in any way. <laughs> it's funny, Tim, you were saying like the Wesley Crusher car, the yeah. young prodigy or whatever he's called. If you look at it, you wouldn't, you might not catch that that's who it's supposed to be, except for there's like a couple elements. In this case, it was his Ensign Starfleet Academy uniform that he was wearing. It had that little, you know, tricolor stripes going across the collar or whatever yep. it was. So, and then you're like, oh yeah, it totally is Wesley. So a lot of these cars just have one or two little sneaky elements that are in, you know, that's what you're looking. You're looking for these little sneaky Easter eggs that are in there. You're not looking at the the goofy art itself. You're looking for little Easter eggs that remind you of, oh, that's what this card's supposed to. So that's where the fun is. For sure. Yeah, the art's pretty pretty bad, but the <laughs> you know the Easter eggs are cool. And there's Easter eggs in just about everything. I mean, I think Tim, you had made the point that every card in there is based on some sci-fi trope. I mean, they've got yeah, the, I think everything is yeah mm-hmm. the the furry smuggler. There's you know the exo stomper, which is like Ripley in her exo suit fighting the alien at the end of aliens you know every single one has got something really amusing and kind of uh, iconic going on yeah and they did a good job too of trying to tie them in thematically as well like i know there's a card in there i forget what it's called now but it's a little et looking thing and he's holding out his finger and it's glowing and when you acquire him you get a heart back right because that's what et does he can heal you so uh, almost every card alien medic yeah right so almost every card not only does it have those fun easter eggs but it ties into the theme as well now, I want to speak to two things from a production perspective. One that is a positive, because you mentioned this is a big box of cardboard, but you forgot to mention the little crystals, the little uh, gems, the power, power gems or power crystals you can get. They're great little plastic gem components, kind of unique shaped. So those still stand out as a nice little component. There's only five of them in the box, but, you know, not bad. And then the one thing that I want to mention is actually a true negative. Because the board's modular and it's all cardboard pieces, those modular boards get torn up really quickly, mm. you know, just by kind of because they fit pretty tightly together, which is nice. It makes the board, you know, all fit together well, mm-hmm. but the, the cardboard comes apart pretty easily. So just something to note, if you pick this game up, um, some people have recommended putting a little super glue on the edges to keep them from falling apart. But my, my copy got pretty beat up after a dozen plays or so. Something to watch for from a production perspective. Are there any upgrades out there for this game? Because I have not seen any. Uh, you know, I haven't seen anything specific to this game. Like when I had mine, I actually bought these little sci-fi credit metal credits to mm. replace the credits in the game. Okay. So there are generic components that you can do to upgrade to some extent. But I don't think there's anything made specifically for this game as far as I've seen anyway. As I was afraid of. So let's jump into um, some moments that stood up to us in our in our play tonight, since we want to tell people what it felt like to play a game right after playing it. What were some moments that really stood out to you? For myself personally, it was very frustrating. I didn't realize, I couldn't move around the board, and I saw you guys running everywhere. I'm like, how are you guys getting over there and doing all this stuff? And like I said, sometimes I'd have a boot. Sometimes I think I went two or three rounds without having a boot at all, and I would just be like, what is going on here? This is awful. So that part was a little frustrating to me. So that's kind of the, personally, my take on moments of the game was just mired in frustration. But I could see you guys, like, on, after playing this game a few times, knowing the importance of the boots, knowing what to buy. And I think that's a sign of a decent game is you don't get it right away or you in emergent strategy. You, you figure out on subsequent plays what's going to work for you better and better and better. So I, there's tons of fun in this game. I and I had a lot of fun playing it and just looking at the cards and watching you guys do what you guys were doing. So my frustration and stuckedness on the upper deck of the spaceship was kind of my frustration moment of the game. Yeah, and I think that's really important to call out because I forgot. I mean, there's a lot of things you have to teach with the game. And, you know, Adam kind of knew the rules coming in. He'd watched a rules video on it. So I didn't have to go through too much. 
But like I was talking about how you got to remember to point people out, like, don't forget, you got to hack two workstations. Don't forget, you got to do this before you can do this. One of the things I try to always teach with it is make sure that you're picking up boots in your deck because that what happened to Adam happens all the time to new players, even sometimes to experienced players who kind of forget and they're just like, ooh, that's a good card. I'll pick that up. But it doesn't have any boots on it. And then you, you buy four or five cards out of the deck that don't have any boots on it. And you're just that's it's the same thing's going to happen. I think if you if you know to watch for that and you're paying attention to it, you can usually mitigate it here. Mm-hmm. But it's an important thing to remember, especially when playing with new players or teaching new players, that there can be a frustrating gameplay. And I've definitely seen it happen before. How about you, Chris? I uh, I think we actually alluded to both of my uh, my big moments of the game that I was going to talk about, and both of them had to do with player interaction. And both of them had to do with flubs that I made, or at least places where I was outmaneuvered by somebody else. And one of them was at the beginning of the game where I was trying to get my first hack and there was a a computer I was aiming for. And I think I actually forgot exactly how that worked because uh, Tim jumped in front of me, hacked the computer. And I was like, okay, well now I'm going to hack it. He's like, well, nope, can't actually do that. (laughs) You got to, only one person can hack computer. And then the next thing you know, I'm like kind of running around the side trying to get to the next one and using up a bunch of resources doing it. And uh, the second one was the uh, the race between Steve and I to get to the the I think it was either the first or second highest point relic in the game, which again is the goal you're hitting for. You want to get to these relics and and get yourself back out because that can be like a quarter of your points come from whichever relic that you end up collecting if you make it back to the escape ships. And Steve and I were in that kind of you know neck and neck race to get to this one relic, and he just got there before I did. And, you know, it was the same thing as uh, Tim hacking that terminal. As soon as that happened, I then had to completely re, re, you know, calculate my plan and go to a different area and waste a few, you know, turns and resources getting over to a different relic because that one had been snatched out from underneath me. And I think that's the sign of a good game. You know, there wasn't, there, there wasn't so much uh, aggressiveness to it as, you know, you just had to maneuver around the other players and have that interaction with them. And if you don't do it right, then you end up getting the smackdown like I got. All right, cool. So I want to just talk about two things. One is that the what this game, I think, always brings for, from a fun perspective comes from that end game tension, the excitement about, am I going to make it out? Am I not going to make it out? And tonight, it, it totally hit again. Like Chris made it to the escape pod. I was one away. I was one space away from the from the escape pod. I made it into the cargo bay. And then the cubes drew out right before my turn and I died or, you know, got knocked out right in the cargo bay. So I didn't get to make it to the escape pod and get that 20 point bonus, but it was so close. And I knew I could, I knew I could get knocked out, but I was so close. If things had just drawn my way, it would have been great. And then Steve's gets, gets to the exact same space that I was like two turns later, trying to get on the same car uh, escape pod that I was trying to get to. And he gets knocked out in the same exact spot. So like we just both just missed that extra 20 point bonus from getting to the escape pod. And I love that. Who went right before? Who went right before you, Tim? Uh, you did. <laughs> oh, that was, oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> always picking on me, man. <laughs> that was probably my actually my shining moment. Was I? Despite I was like so out of this game, I was still able to buy like three cards <laughs> from the uh, from the market. That's room, right. You did. Which gives yeah. a higher chance. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> which gives a higher chance of 
Lord Vader, Lord Eradicus um, attacking. And it worked out. It, worked it was out. funny, too, because Steve is like, Adam, you know that you've got further to go. If you keep drawing cards out there, you're just hurting yourself. And he's like, no, I feel good. I don't have a lot of blue cubes in my bag. So he, he takes three cards from the row. And then, of course, we get attacked and four cubes come out. And they're none of Adam's and like two of mine. I think two and a bounty hunter. So I took three damage on that last turn. That was so satisfying. But yeah, then Steve died in the exact same spot as I did. You know, same level of tension. Where, in fact, it was because um, at that point, I'm knocked out and Chris is out of the game. So I did my four draws and then Chris does his four draws and he knocks Steve out right before Steve would have had gotten the chance to take his turn. And then because Steve was now knocked out, then he's drawn to see if he can knock Adam out. So there's that exciting endgame tension. But it also goes back to the one thing that I didn't enjoy as much as I've been Josh and Adam tonight, and that is as a first-time player, I was frustrated for Adam's sake that he didn't get to experience the the full game. He got kind of stuck. He didn't get to really get anywhere, and he still got to do some deck building and still got to do yeah. some fun things, but didn't actually get to get into the control room and try to navigate all the monsters in there, all the aliens, and try to navigate the challenges that you have to try to get the best artifact. I hate when a person's playing a game that I love and they don't get to have that fun experience. So. See, I, I think... Maybe you're a little overly empathetic. You got to de-empathize. I still had a, I still had a great time playing this game. I know that's the peril. I, I don't get involved in a board game thinking that it's going to be all happy joy and butterflies the whole time. So, I don't mind getting slaughtered, and that's part of the part of the fun to me is, is getting hammered in a board game and seeing that there's a room for improvement. To me, that means there's room for improvement. I'm coming after you guys next time. Yeah. So that's what that's what that means. And that really says something if, you know, you played a game, really were not happy with your performance and you still had a great time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's that going for it. The reason it stood out to me is because it's not the first time it's happened in this game, especially with new players, regardless of how I teach or what they, what I recommend they do. Inevitably, someone's like, oh no, I'll be riskier. I'll do this here. And I'm like, oh, the tempo is kind of pushing forward here. You might want to get to the end. No, I want to walk around in this, this bay a little bit. <laughs> and so on a first play, it can really, you know, someone can end up not really getting experience the full game. Um, because it, it's focused on that. I mean, that's, that's true of any game. Once you have somebody that knows a little bit better, they're going to, they're obviously going to have a better chance at success. But I mean, how many times am I going to make that mistake? Hopefully just this one. <laughs> I, I feel like I've, <laughs> I feel like I've learned my lesson. If you make it next time, you deserve yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I, you make that mistake once and then that's it. You see how the game's supposed to be played. So yeah, no big deal. All right. Well, leading on to that, then let's get into our final question and ask, would you request to play this game again? And since Adam, you were just talking about how, even though you had a frustrating experience, you still had fun. How does that fit into your your you know ideal of this game? Is this a game you would ask to play again? I think if somebody wanted to play it, I don't know if I would request play. Let me say that. But okay. if this was like set up at Tim's house and ready to go, and I showed up and we were just gonna have like a goofy, hilarious time, like messing with each other, I would totally get in to playing this game. And there was no, I would never say no to this game. I think it's just great fun, and I would love to play it. And I don't know, if, but I don't know if I would ever requested i think i would prefer dune or some other maybe like once a year i might request it i guess i don't know uh what about you chris yeah i i don't want to put myself in anybody's head because you know adam knows his thoughts way better than i do but i wonder if we played it again and you kind of got the full experience of you know now that you know how to play it and now that you know sort of this the, the the strategy and the techniques I wonder if you played it a second time, if you would feel more enthusiastic about it. I don't know. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't, but it's, um, it is such a fun game. I, I kind of, I kind of think that you might, but again, you know, that's, that, that's your, that's your deal, but you might totally be right. You know, I would just to put it, I wouldn't have no problems playing this game again. 
like right now, it'd be it'd be great. Yeah, I mean, everybody enjoys a game more when they do well at it. So, you know, now that you know it, I, I think it'd be it would be fun to try it with you again to see see how you feel about it. But for me, I mean, definitely, I, it is a fun game. We haven't played it in a long time. I don't know if it's one I'd want to play all the time. You know, every time we play, but you know, certainly this is a game I could see wanting to play again, and you know, not too distant future. And this is actually one that we had not played in a long time. You know, we had we played it a long time ago. And then kind of sat dormant, kind of came up out of nowhere, and I'd almost forgotten about the game. And then I, I was thrilled when I found out we were playing it. And sure enough, after playing the game, had a great time. And I, I certainly think I'd be, I'd love to play it again. What about you, Tim? Steve requested this game tonight, and when he did, I was like, yes, I'm excited. We haven't played Clink, Clink in space especially, for a long time. And so I was super excited when he called it out. I will definitely request to play games in the Clank series again. The reason I'm going to say that is because... I think what I was mentioning about the pacing of Clank in Space, the, what they did to try to fix the two rushed game, I think actually bogs the game down a little bit. It bogs it down when teaching it, and it and it bogs it down just in the fun of, you know, what you're trying to do. You're kind of forced to go and do these things that aren't necessarily a fun part of the game. And so after a lot of plays, like 25 plays of it, I'm a little tired on Clank in Space. That said, I absolutely will request other games in the Clank series, and I'll tell you why. So. The original Clank, which is a little bit lighter because it doesn't have those extra things you have to do, otherwise plays just about the same. And if you've got people playing at the same skill level, usually someone's not going to just rush in, grab the cheapest artifact, and rush back out because they know they're probably going to lose the game on points. So you don't tend to have, with people that know the game a little bit, don't, don't tend to have that really super over-rushed game, but the experience is more streamlined. So I think if I was going to own a version of Clank, it would be the original version versus Clank in Space for myself, and I'm more likely to ask to play that one again. But even more than that, Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated, which is a legacy version of the game, is still one of the best gaming experiences I've ever had in my life. If I had a few people to sit down and play a 12, 10 or 12 game series with me again over a couple weekends or over a couple months or something, I would do it 100% in a heartbeat. I've played through the, the Legacy game with Chris. We had a great time playing it, and I would absolutely just start the whole campaign. I'd go and buy a second copy to start it over again. And after hearing you guys talk about that, that is one that I totally want to play and would absolutely request to play if, if it's anything like this. And hearing you guys talk about it and the, the gimmicks and the hilarity just sounds fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah, and they've added even not only in the story and the mechanisms and the theme and everything and the like the fun of legacy of unlocking stuff, they've actually added some new mechanisms to the game that make mm -hmm. it a superior version of the game. No doubt. And I won't go into a lot of details on those, but once you finish playing Acquisitions Incorporated, you can actually keep playing. And that's why I gave my clank and space to Chris, because I was like, I've got this even better version of this game. Now the one reason that I don't necessarily like playing the game afterwards though is that, you know, just like any legacy game, you end up writing on the board, you know, putting names on the board, putting names and stickers on cards and stuff like that. And it's really fun to have that impact on the game while you're playing it. But from a production perspective, then it just looks like homemade. It looks sloppy. So it's not as, as kind of a neat and, you know, clean of an experience. So like, Adam, when you came out to visit last week and I seriously thought about introducing you to it, I was like, hey, we could just bust out and I could teach him Clank on this version. But to me, it just kind of gets a little bit like, oh, and then I got to look at my sloppy handwriting all over all these components on the on the game. And I got to explain to Adam why I came up with a stupid name for the city while we were in the middle of playing because I was trying to rush into the story <laughs> and stuff. So I have a question. So if I bought Clank Acquisitions Incorporated and played through it with some friends here, mm -hmm. 
how different would the end result be, my version versus your version? From what I could tell, because I did kind of go through after that our campaign was done and kind of look at what leftover components, there would be differences, but not drastic. Like probably enough where if, if I now a year in looked at your board versus I wouldn't remember what was different from my board. There are some spaces that wouldn't be there. There are some spaces that would be in different places. There are some cards that would be different. Like there are cards that you never unlock if you don't make certain story choices, or there are cards that you destroy if, if you make certain story choices. So there are definitely some changes. I don't think it'd feel drastically different as a game. No, that's my that's my take on it. They're minor minor differences. Okay. But fun, fun to have that impact. It's just like as playing a finished production of a game, to me, it's just not quite finished enough when you've got handwriting all over the board and stuff. So sure. All right. So that that's my take on Clank in space. That will wrap us up for this conversation. We're gonna talk about some things we're excited about in gaming right after this. Welcome back. So we're going to talk about some things we're excited about in board gaming right now, but we're going to talk about a topic that's kind of relevant to our choices for tonight. And that topic is diversity, diversity in board gaming, diversity in board game publishing, um, in in the, the people who are designing the games and, and creating the art for the games. But also, I think this is all relevant to the people that are playing the games. The reason I'm bringing this up right now is because we've decided as a group that we want to reinforce more diversity in this hobby, promote the games that are being created by a more diverse group of people than traditionally have been heavily involved in board games, which is your typical white male, just like us, right? Anyway, the reason we're doing this is because we want to make this a regular segment that we're doing, which is to intentionally go out and identify some more diverse board game creators. That helps us kind of put the effort into investigating and trying to find things. It doesn't mean that we won't be just talking about board game creators that are not white males on other days, but we're going to kind of challenge ourselves to do this on a regular basis. I'm not going to bring this all up every time we do, but I did want to bring up why we're doing it today. And I've got some, some feelings about why we're doing this, but I'm actually going to throw this over to Chris. Chris, you and I were chatting one day just about the podcast, and you actually said to me, Tim, I've got this idea. How about if we focus on games that are for more diverse creators? So tell me a little bit about, Chris, why you wanted to bring this into our show. And I wholeheartedly agreed. I had kind of had something in mind similar, and Adam, I think, did as well. Chris, why did you bring this in, and, and why is it important to you? You know, I whenever this topic comes up, I always feel like I want to get soapboxy and start you know, preaching about things. And I won't, I won't do that here, but at least in the spirit of explaining why this you know, idea came up, and I think it probably came up in similar ways for all of us, is that there's a couple things going on. And one is sort of philosophical and one is kind of practical. One, the philosophical thing is that I think you know, there's a lot of things in this world that have, you know, that have not been done correctly. And you know, basically, the entire history of the human race has been about um, you know, making, uh, you know, white males as uh, comfortable and as entertained as humanly possible. And, and that counts out a whole lot of voices. And there's a course correction there that, that needs to be done. And that's at this very, you know, very high, very philosophical kind of level. At a practical level, the fact that voices are not welcomed in in a more broad spectrum means is that you end up with a much narrow, much less interesting world to live in. And that goes for board games as much as it does everything else, music and food and culture and, and all the things that we kind of deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And so those two things put together, and I thought, you know, maybe this is something we ought to maybe you know talk about a little bit more, and and maybe ho- hopefully we're adding something to that. And I, I hope we do. Yeah, I think that's great, you guys. And when you guys brought this idea up, it was completely your guys' idea. I had no um, no, but I saw it at first mention it, and I was like, heck yeah, I want to I want to jump in on that. And there's a lot of things going on in the world that disgust me, and I don't think that are right. And I do want to help, and I don't necessarily know the best way to help. And if Maybe this will help, maybe it won't, but it's it's opening the door to learning how to help at a very minimum. And if I could open that door and find more ways to help, I want to do it. I'm very on board with this and I'm glad we're doing it. For me, diversity is important for a couple of reasons. As Chris mentioned, it is a course correction. It's something that is well overdue. Also, like he mentioned, it's about having more interesting people to game with. It's about having more interesting ideas in the games that were that are accessible to us. How many Western-based trading or games that are just kind of based in Western culture and power and privilege that came from that and how many themes are based around that Man, it'd be so it'd be so much more fun to have just a more more variety in the ideas and concepts. But beyond that, it's the people. It's the people that were around. Basically, the hobby is excluding a lot of people that we could be gaming with, that we're more likely to be gaming with. Because if there's not representation in the games that are being created, if people have not been seeing other gamers of their color or sex or whatever, they're not feeling that representation. They're less likely to be drawn into the hobby. And I think because of that, there is just a lot more white males that are going to be here. You know, I'm going to try to be starting a new gaming group here. I just moved to Phoenix to the Phoenix area about six months ago. We've been in COVID, so I haven't been able to get out, but pretty soon we're vaccinated. You know, things are going to start to open up. I'm hoping to get out to some local game stores, maybe to meetups. You know what I'm going to see? I'm really expecting to see all white men. And that's disappointing to me. That's frustrating. So, you know, I think one of the ways that we can help hopefully change that on a macro level is start to support some of the games that are being created by diverse individuals. And that can be women who haven't commonly been heavily involved in board game design. It can be people of color, it can be LGBT. And the more of those ideas and concepts and people that are building games, the more likely those people are gonna be in the hobby. Also, from a personal level, I have a daughter, I have a nine-year-old daughter. To me, it's ridiculous that, and I know this because 20 years ago, I was playing Magic the Gathering at tournaments. She would go into one of those tournaments and not only not see anyone else that looked like her, but probably feel open hostility and sexism because there's a whole bunch of people that aren't used to being around women, don't know how to talk to them, don't, like, it's just, I don't want that world for my daughter. And this homogeny that exists in the board game world today, I don't want it anymore. I I don't want the rest of the world to be grown with it. And so those are some of the reasons why I think representation, diversity is important. And so if we can start to find and and talk about some board games that are created by a more diverse population, maybe content creators that are more diverse, I think it's just positive. Do you guys want to anything else before we jump in and and talk about some of the games that kind of fit into these categories? Yeah, for what it's worth, um, I I, I still don't know how to talk to girls and I'm married. Uh, Chris, why don't you start us off? What have you been What have you been looking at this week in games? The game itself is one that is called Boss Battle, and it's a game that funded on Kickstarter not too long ago. It is not out yet. It's been funded and it's been successful, but it has not actually been produced and is not not out there for the the backers yet. The designers were Matt Martin, Jessica Pierce and PJ Vilsaint. The game is produced by Boss Battle Games. And it is a pretty cool looking game. I, I love Kickstarters. This one caught my attention. I love 
colorful games. I like uh, ones that look like fun, and this one just looks like a blast. It's actually RPG inspired. It's largely card based. I would encourage you to go on to Kickstarter and look at it if you're interested. Uh, but it is very much based in that RPG mode where you've got you you select your you select your character. There's a uh, I believe a warrior, uh, thief, um, uh, a mage, and a priestess. And you're fighting against the boss of boss battle, which I believe there's a couple of them. The primary one is a dragon. And you pick your character, very asymmetrical in the sense that each different character type has uh, abilities that are available to them with different levels of cards. And as you play through your cards, as you play through your rounds, you're, you're leveling up your character and making them more and more powerful, just like you would do in an RPG. And what was interesting, a mechanism in here that kind of caught my attention, maybe this is something that gets done more frequently and I'm just not familiar with it. It actually, what it reminded me of was in Star Wars Rebellion, how you build your ships, you know, the fancier the ship you get, the more rounds you have to go as it makes its way down the production track. And then you get to the end and it's like, bam, it, you know, drops at some point and it, it goes into play. This game looks like there's a similar mechanism in how the cards are played. So as you, uh, as the rounds go through, you play cards that have a number on them, a zero, one, or a two, I believe, are the three levels. The zero cards are the ones that actually get played as, as you get to the, the action round and you resolve the cards. And then once you finish those, your next level cards move up, and that's how you end up going through the round of, uh, of actions that you do and how you sort of strategize, not just amongst your characters, but in terms of what do I want to happen a couple turns down the road and what play do I want to have happen and get that card in the right place so that it comes up and, and rolls into place you know, at the right time. So the, the mechanism sounded really interesting to me. I like the theme of it. Uh, and the art is just super fun looking. It's colorful. It's got some, it, it actually reminds me in a, in a way of kind of a better art version of um, like Clank in Space where there's there's some humor and a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of cuteness to it too, but it's, it, it really is kind of impactful and, and dynamic. And I really enjoyed that. And I, I look forward to seeing that game when it comes out. Yeah, that's cool, Chris. And I agree with it, you on the art here. It is really cute and kind of comical, but also in a much more stylized way. And yeah, the mechanisms, it almost seems to be kind of a programming mechanism where you kind of plan in the past and then things you know flow into place in the future. And those are always interesting. Uh, they usually lead to some kind of hijinks when somebody didn't plan out right for two turns in a row and you know things have shifted from then. So could be could be really fun. Interesting. How do you how did you run across this one? You know, honestly, I don't remember. I just remember seeing it. And then, you know, the, the concept of this segment came up and I was looking through it and I'm like, oh, well, this is a perfect one to talk about. Chris, I'm looking at this game on Kickstarter. It looks really cool. Hey, I also noticed that over on BoardGameGeek, it just has the one designer listed. But on the Kickstarter page, it has the all three of the designers listed. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I wonder if they can update that on uh, BoardGameGeek or if they will update that. Hmm. Anyway, Tim, what are you looking at this week? All right, so I'm going to talk about a game that has had a little bit more attention late, lately. So I've heard it mentioned in a couple of reviews, but it is a game that got my attention, that got me excited, in fact, to the point where I've just ordered it. And this game is Red Cathedral. This is designed by Sheila Santos, and she's also listed as Shea Santos. I think I've heard her in an interview describe herself like that. And Israel Sandrero. This is a, a co-design by a couple, but they've also had several other designs. This is the first one that's really gotten some attention from what I can tell, but they've they've uh, co-designed several games together and um, looks like published several games, maybe self-published. 
Red Cathedral is a pretty, um, pretty Euro-y game. Uh, you know, definitely my style. It's kind of a dice rondelle game where you're moving dice around a rondelle and then collecting related resources. But some of the things I really like about it, one, just from a mechanical perspective, it has what looks to me like a fun puzzle to figure out. Every time the place that you move your dice is how many, the number of pips on it is how many resources you can collect. I don't want a fox in the forest debacle here, so I'm not going to try to go into too much detail and explain that without having played the game recently. You know, it looks like a fun mechanism. And then one of the other cool parts about it is that you're actually working together. You're playing as architects that are building the famous Red Cathedral in Russia. At the start of the game, you draw a card and it kind of has a blueprint of what the what the cathedral is going to look like. And so that's going to be a certain number of base pieces and then different areas that are going to go up the spire and then the tops of the spires. Then you randomly put out these different cards that have different costs on them. And if you're able to actually build that segment, of course, you have to start at the base because you can't build a spire with no base underneath it. But once somebody's built the base, then you can build the segment on top of it. So it's a little bit about collecting the right resources and then trying to turn those resources in, create these parts of the of the building. But as you create different parts, you get to unlock features on your player board that give you better powers as you use different colored dice. The whole game just looks super fun and puzzly and a lot of player interaction where you're trying to race to the different segments that you know somebody else is going for before they get to them, trying not to let them have the best dice available to you, uh, you know, when they're choosing their resources. And I really like the art style and, uh, you know, it's a little different theme. It's, it's set in Russia, so it's kind of fun to me. I didn't even realize that there was a woman involved in the design here. And as I was looking into it the other day, I saw that. I got a chance to watch an interview with both of them and I'm really excited to see what else both the designers, but Sheila especially has in store for us because this is a really clever design and I can't wait to play it. How did you find this game and have you played it? You said you had played it before? I haven't played it yet. I, I just ordered it, okay. um, but I had heard, I think I heard it talked about on the Blue Peg Pink Peg podcast first um, and they were just talking about being a small box game. And my understanding is a very small box game, like almost a, slightly bigger than a fort size box with full like Euro components in it. So they were just talking about how they got this little tiny box and didn't think it was going to be much and they just loved it. So I heard it from them and then I heard a couple other podcasts that were just raving about it. And so it got my attention. When I hear people rave about something that isn't a new IP game or isn't, you know, just the big, hot, heavily marketed game, there's got to be something special about it. So it got me to look into it and the gameplay looks super fun. I think Thinker Themer did a really great, I don't know if you guys have seen them yet. They're yep. one of my favorite reviewers, but they did a really great playthrough and review of it. When they both love a game, I'm pretty much like, okay, that's going to be really cool. So I got really excited about it. And it's, like I said, it's a small box. I know it's not going to take up a lot of space on my shelf. I it, think it's got a solo mode. I'm pretty sure I double checked that before I bought it, which always means that I can get it played even if nobody else wants to play with me. But I think this is going to be a great fit for not only my heavier gaming friends, but like my wife and Jen, they love games like Castles of Burgundy. They, they don't mind kind of drier Euros that just have fun mechanisms. And this seems like it would be a hit with them. So I'm excited to try it out. The first line of the description just tickled my funny bone. It says, autumn's not the best time to climb up on a scaffold in Moscow, but it's better than doing it in winter. I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, apparently the different spaces around the rondelle, um, and I don't remember exactly how they play in, but they're, they're based on four different seasons. And you can kind of see that represented in the art, which looks pretty neat. There's, there's some pretty cool uh, season art on the, on the main board. So Adam, what you got for us? I am going to talk about Hollenspiel. They are a publisher that have been making just very evocative and provocative. Games that make you think, the games that evoke, you know, strong emotion that aren't just about your trading in the Mediterranean. From their website, they're described as a small publisher that specializes in military history games. And that's a little dry. You go over to their Twitter 
And it says, Dinosaurs, everybody. Mary and Amy run Hollenspiel, a publisher of weird games for weird people. <laughs> yeah. War games, train games, and other delights. So it's Mary, Russell, and Amabel Holland. And they've been running Hollenspiel for a very, very long time. One of their most famous ones was An Infamous Traffic. That's one of Cole Worley's early games that he designed. But Amabel Holland has been designing games forever. She's got a multitude of games in her repertoire. First one I knew about from her was Irish Gage. The latest one she's put out is Dual Gage. It's another kind of intro to the train game, like a sort of a variant on 18XX, much lighter than 18XX. You go to their webpage and you look at all this vast array of games. They're not scared to put out controversial games, games that tackle serious subjects. They all just go to their front page. Their feature games are Dual Gauge, the one I just talked about. They have a game called The Vote, which is about suffrage and suppression in America. Another one they put out is Meltwater. That's where two vast superpowers are more concerned about fighting each other than saving the planet. That couldn't happen. I know, that would never happen, right? Um, another game they've published is called Agricola, Master of Britain. There's a hilarious review on Board Game Geek about some guy went and bought Agricola thinking it was this game, but actually got the the other, the trading, the, the strictly <laughs> Euro game. <laughs> he goes on like a just a hilarious essay about how horrible this trading resources game was versus the game that he expected to get about, you know, war in ancient Roman times. <laughs> but if you haven't heard of Holland Spiel, go check out their website. They just have a, just a vast array of interesting, unique, fascinating games. And many of them are designed by Amabel Holland. Uh, yeah, some of these I am familiar with. I've heard of. I played Irish Gage before, but a lot of these I've never even heard from. I heard about before, so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm actually interested in digging in a little bit more and checking some of these out. That Agricola one you were talking about is actually a solo game, it looks like, which, right. again, you know, like, that's... I'm not just a solo player by any means, but I'm always interested when there's a unique-looking solo game that I know I can get plenty of plays of if I like it. Put out tons of solo games. I think Escape from Hades might be... Yeah. Yeah, Escape from Hades. That looks fascinating to me, and it's a solo player as well. I've never taken the plunge on that one, but it looks amazing as well. That's just really quick. That's designed by Fred Manzo, and the art's by Will Alambre, but published under Hollenspiel. Yeah, they take a lot of independent uh, designers and turn their ideas into games. It's fantastic. Well, and, and looking at some of the stuff on their site here, Adam, I mean, there's some pretty deep dives into some pretty arcane history here. I mean... You know, Hood's Last Gamble. It's the the 1884 Franklin Nashville campaign. I mean, that's that that's interesting. I mean, I, you you said military history is dry, but you know that kind of deep dive into history, I think, can make it for some you know fascinating subject material for a game. There is some absolutely niche, like fascinating topics that they I would have not otherwise known about, except I've been introduced to them through these board games. So I think it's just a fantastic way to to expand your knowledge base and become less ignorant, which is always plenty for me to become less ignorant about. Thanks, Adam. That was that was super interesting. Definitely some games that I hadn't checked out before, so I'm excited to dig in a little bit further. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I think that will probably wrap up our podcast for this week. If you have any thoughts on the games or topics that we covered today, feel free to hit us up on social media and drop us a note. Um, one last thing I'll mention, and there'll only be about four or five days left when this podcast releases. So if you make it this far in the episode, one of our efforts to actually help support diversity is also that as a podcast, uh, we're going to be donating some money to the 
Human Rights Campaign, which is a nonprofit organization that supports LGBT rights. Also, especially in these times with some of the laws that have been being passed recently, they especially help support trans youth. They do a lot to kind of fight anti-LGBT laws. So basically what happened was, you know, I knew this topic was something we were going to be talking about, but I'd been thinking about it anyway. So I thought, why not let our listeners kind of get involved in doing some good in the world on May 1st? However many Twitter followers we have, I will donate that many dollars to the HRC. Adam jumped in and said that was a great idea and he would double that down. So if you want to support the human rights campaign, just follow us on Twitter. It's free for you and can make us donate some more money and we're, we're happy to do it. And Chris said, screw that. No, I, count me in too. I didn't realize we were doing that until just now. All right. Well, there you go. And I'll, I'll bring this up on Twitter again, though, just to call out that basically then we're going to triple what. So basically, whatever, however many Twitter followers we have on May 1st, we will triple that amount and donate that much to the human rights campaign. Thanks, Chris. That's very generous of you to, to join in as well. All right. So that's all I have for this week. Until next week, take care, everybody. Have a good night. Bye-bye.